Uh, one of the more common types that you may know of fatal car accidents, uh, specifically with a single car accident, involves what is typically called a driver error. If you're wondering what that means, it means the driver had an error. Usually it refers to like a distracted driver, like a cell phone or something, uh, falling asleep at the wheel, a tire blowing out, uh, speeding around a turn too fast and not recognizing it, or going over a hill too quickly, having to swerve, those kind of things. And what typically happens in these kind of accidents uh, is the driver either awakes or realizes where he's, where he's at, what he's doing, and what he, ha he does what we would call an overcorrection. He may swerve to avoid the curve. He cuts the wheel too hard to counter the coming wreck. And in doing so, to fix one error, he errs on the other side and results in a fatality. Uh, up to this point, uh, the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to has uh, many errors, to say the least. There have been multiple causes of division from wrong views of the gospel in the world, wrong views of wisdom and worldliness, pride, uh, the identity of church leadership, um, all these things that none of us know anything about. <laughs> but if you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, Paul has been addressing sexual immorality. Um, from the heinous and frightening of incest in chapter 5, uh, to just blatant immorality in chapter 6. And what's happening is the church of Corinth has been erring on one side. They've been falling asleep at the wheel, so to speak. Uh, they have a fallen sexual ethic. They have been greatly led astray. And now what's happening is they are overcorrecting, you can say. There's false teaching in, in Corinth, we think. There needs to be errors. And Paul now addresses what needs to happen. <clears throat> if you look in verse 1, you can kind of see where we're getting this from. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So it seems to be that they asked Paul, hey, since there's all these problems in Corinth with idolatry, what do we do? We don't understand. And what they did is they overcorrect. They turned the other direction and of saying, well, because there's all these ways to sin sexually, maybe we should just abstain completely. That's obviously the answer. And so Paul is going to instruct them that there are biblical reasons and biblical parameters for marriage, singleness, and divorce which if you were in this church, it would make a whole lot of sense because you've been told all these ways that you're rebelling this way, and now Corinth is saying, well, then what do we do? And Paul's going to instruct as well. <clears throat> so first, we're going to tackle marital relations, next, singleness, and then thirdly, talk a little bit about divorce. So nothing heated in this sermon today. Look at verse 1. First, talk about marriage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote about, again, it seems to be they're asking for help, um, and then the line we think is a quote from their letter. Again, we don't, they don't have quotations in first century, so we think this is a quote. I would probably say that as well. And so what they're telling Paul is they're saying, well, Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's more likely what they're saying is, well, because we've been addressed so hard on this side of the issue, just reject it altogether, overcorrect, right? But by, Paul, by, by way of reminder, Paul is telling the church in Corinth that as Christians— uh, we actually own the market on marriage. It's not a construct made by the culture. Uh, you don't get told what to do. The Bible has made it. God has designed it. We actually own the market on it. So look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So this is the beginning of Paul's correction. First, he encourages how marriage can aid each partner in holiness. So because we are weak in temptation, Paul says being married is a good thing. 
it's okay. And intimacy is intended for that reason. Now, if you know, sex was not created after temptation. So it's not like there's Adam and Eve, and then there was no meta relations, and then it happened after the fall. It ha- happened pre-fall. So in other words, marital intimacy is not a an effect of sin is actually meant to be there before sin. So it's meant for our good, as the Bible says here. So in verse 5, Paul can say, do not deprive one another. So he's saying, you don't need to flee. This isn't something you can be scared about. Don't run. It's a good thing. It's okay. As Christians, it's important that we preserve the purity that is designed with a covenant of marriage. To be very frank and upfront about it, There is no other place, no other means, and no other way for sex to be intended except between a husband and a wife. What that means then is outside of marriage, when this happens, there are broken hearts. There are feelings of feeling used, being thrown around, feeling unclean, or feeling dirty when it happens outside of a covenant. Typically, these things bring sorrow, self-hate, anger, jealousy, and all the things that accompany it. You don't, have to watch, you don't have to watch The Bachelor to know that this happens, right? You just go to high school. Therefore, as Christians, we can offer something the world cannot provide. They cannot cleanse your conscience. If you have any errors in this life, in your past life, you can go to all the counseling. You can go to all, read all the books. You just, you're, if you're guilty, you're guilty. But only Christians have the good news that though a physical virginity can never be restored... In Christ, a true and better purity can be granted. Psalm 51 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. So we can offer to unbelieving people a a real gospel that actually cleanses people. It can make you anew. You don't have to be guilty, though that's true. You don't have to walk around with a, a filthy conscience. You can sleep easy if you're a believer that knowing that all your sins, regardless of how it happened, can be made new. And again, verses 3 and 4, that's what Paul's talking about. This purity is meant to be for marriage, to be very simply. Look at verses 3 and 4. He specifically says that husband and wives are to give themselves to the other. Do you see how this sounds like the Christian gospel? Christian marriage is meant to reflect Christian love to his bride, the church. So marriage is meant to look like Jesus in the church and his love for her solely. Just as Jesus gave himself up for his bride, in response, we give ourselves to Christ. So too in marriage, it is meant to reflect that. Christian love is a selfless love. Notice Paul is not saying, woman, do what I say, right? Or husband, do what I say. It's No, you're giving yourself, right? Christian love is not a demanding, self-centered, help me, praise me, look at me love. It's self-giving. It's selfless. Uh, John MacArthur said this, he said, God's way to a successful marriage focuses on what husbands and wives put into it, not on what they can get out of it. I think that's a great summation of what Paul just said. So marriage is thought, when we think of marriage as a way to please myself, they're here to make me happy, to please me, to better me, you will always feel unhappy. You will feel empty and you will feel lonely. But when by grace we seek to please the other, not just intimacy, but with other things, you will all of a sudden be less offended by everything. You will be less demanding. You will be less frustrated. You will be less self-serving because you recognize that it's not about me. It's about pleasing my spouse and most importantly, pleasing Christ. Think of what Jesus did. When Jesus entered into a covenant with you, did he do it to get anything from you? Just answer it for you. 
we have nothing to offer. (laughs) There's nothing in us or of us that he needs. He did it for our good and for God's glory. So too, if you're married, you must act the same way. Love your spouse for their good and for God's glory. That's how we ought to love. Lust and coveting is selfish and self-seeking, but love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, does not seek its own way. Therefore, Paul concludes in verse 5 that to do so, to refrain and to be dangerous with how we live with our spouse, can actually be Satan's means of tempting you because of your lack of self-control. In case you're wondering, uh, yes, Satan is real. I think we always wonder, is he getting me? Is he tempting me? Maybe, I don't know. But it's very clear, one thing's for sure, is Satan hates your marriage. His first act of rebellion was to destroy the first marriage ever created. He hates marital roles. He hates that husbands and wives have roles. He hates faithfulness in marriage. He hates intimacy in marriage. His desire for you is to be a miserable husband or a miserable wife. He would love for you to resent your husband. He'd love for you to be angry at your wife and to be selfish, to ignore them. It's no mistake that a lot of times, so in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is a great chapter on marriage. If you've not read it, plow through it. But right next door to Ephesians chapter 6, which is a huge chapter on spiritual warfare. That is no mistake. So brothers and sisters, if you are married, Paul has a simple charge for you. Fight for holiness by submitting yourself to God and the devil will flee from you. So your job as a married couple is to show the gospel of Christ in Christian marriage, how Jesus loved the other and gave himself up for her. You must do the same. Now, singleness, look at verses six through nine. Paul talks about being single. Notice that he says this isn't a command, but a concession. So this, so Paul didn't just say, hey, it's good to be married. By the way, you shouldn't get married because that would be a contradiction. So we know that's not what he's saying, right? What he's saying is this is what I would maybe recommend. This is where I'm at. So here's what I would do. That's what Paul's saying. So he's not giving permission to be unmarried, but he's giving a concession for it. Permission, you could say. Look at verse seven. I wish the all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one kind, one of one kind, excuse me, and one of another. So Paul's telling that he values his position currently. Uh, one commentator um, wrote, a, wrote Paul's words in a paraphrase. I want to read it to you. It's very helpful, at least for me. Here's what he said. Would the all who were eager to be chased were able to control themselves as I do? For it has turned out that with this special gift from God, I do not experience the passions of the flesh when I am agitated by dangers, worries, and cares. I know this is the gift of God given to very few people, and I know that. So Paul's not belittling being single or being married. He's not saying that he's better than anybody or worse than anybody by being single. He's actually saying there is no better life. Both the singleness and marriage that God gives are blessings because they are both, look at verse 7, a gift from God. Uh, when I grew up in middle school and high school and like Christian youth groups, is always called the gift of singleness. And we give it a hard time. And I think that's very wrong. Like joke about it, I understand that. But I think that's wrong. Paul's saying here, this is good. Like being single is not a curse. It's good. It's okay to be single, right? Jesus himself was the same. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 19, I want to read you something that Jesus actually said about singleness that's very helpful. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. That's a passage. If you don't know, it's good to know. Uh, I want to read it for you. Matthew 19, 10 through 12. uh, Jesus says that the disciples said to him, if such is the case, so he just talked about marriage and divorce. 
If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he, Jesus, said to them, not everyone, who can re- not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Their eunuchs have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus is saying, there's different kinds of people in the world. Some are single for one reason, some for another. But Jesus is not condemning, he's actually blessing this position. Think of Paul's life as a missionary and preacher. Maybe you know Paul's track record. If you don't, I will remind you. He daily went into synagogues, which are unbelieving Christian churches, right? They're Jewish greetings. And he would preach the gospel and he would get kicked out. Not just kicked out, he would get chased out. He would open air preach, he'd be chased out of cities. He records being beaten, arrested, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and stoned. I don't know if having a wife would be a good thing for Paul. When I drive my FedEx truck, my wife wears on me all the time, and I'm not getting stoned by anybody. Can you imagine being Paul? That's what he's saying. If I, would, if I, if I was weak that way, I had no way to be out doing what God's called me to do. And thus, he rightly acknowledges the singleness that is both a gift from God and is for God. Paul was celibate. Jesus himself was celibate. The only apostle we have being married recorded for us is Peter. The others, we don't know. The main, the main issue is there's no denigration upon personhood. Personhood is not dist- does not determine it upon marital status. It's defined by who we are in relation to God and to Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore, he says what? It is good for them to remain single. But if you cannot exercise self-control... They should marry. So singleness is a blessing of another type. Marriage is a blessing of another. Recognizing that this is God's hand, um, though we strive against him, though we wrestle with these things, if we believe that it is from God's hand, we can rest that he is good. Jesus talks about when it comes to prayer that if we ask for bread, our father will never give us a scorpion. And you think, that's quite the contrast there. That's the point. He's not, if you're a Christian, the Father's not out to get you. There's no anger. He knows what he's doing. So singleness should be esteemed as Paul and Christ were. And like I said, we have many models in the Christian life. If you would like one, I would like to recommend a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. I will quote her uh, right now. She says this. Her husband was martyred um, in the 1900s. You probably remember Jim Elliot about the story. That was her husband who was killed as a missionary. And she writes this about being single. My most earnest of all pleas to singles is abandonment of the self, surrender to Christ of all unfulfilled longings, and unequivocal willingness to receive whatever God assigns. So what she's saying is unfulfilled desires, they really do exist. She's not knocking that, neither is Paul. What the Bible would say is surrender them to Christ. As married people, we have desires that aren't fulfilled in our marriage. Because your spouse is a sinner, right? They're not Jesus. Single people have unfulfilled longings the same way that we do. So what's the cure? Submit to Christ. Jesus is sufficient for you regardless of your status. And he is good. That's who we need to trust. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So to the unmarried, Paul essentially says, glorify God by looking to Christ to fulfill all your longings. So just as marriage can show in a special way, Jesus in the church, 
uh, singleness can show in a special way the sufficiency of Christ alone, right? So we, we don't see that as clear when we're married because, well, we have a, we have a partner, right? But when you're single, you don't have that. So what do you have? Well, you, you, you can greatly emphasize all I need is Christ. And we can see that better through people who are single, and it's a gift. So singleness is meant to show the sufficiency of Christ alone. Next, we're going to handle the nice section of divorce that Paul gives here. In verses 10 through 16, Paul talks about divorce. So he, he speaks from singleness, I'm sorry, marriage, and then singleness and now divorce. So again, think about what Corinth has done. There is immorality, specifically of the sexual kind. So what are they thinking? Well, if I'm married, uh, I ought not. Well, if I'm single, I definitely ought not. Maybe I should. And if, and, and if I am married, should I, mean, should I like divorce my spouse? Like, do you, see, do, you, do you see the confusion? I mean, they've just, they don't know, they don't know what to do. They're overcorrecting to the extreme. So Paul's going to address all three categories, and I think it's very helpful. So look at verse 10. He says this. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Meaning specifically that Jesus already addressed the issue um, in, in the Gospels, as he's referring to. So he's not saying, not that I don't say anything, but Jesus already addressed this. I'm going to refer to it here. Look at verses 10 through 11. Paul reminds us that the Lord Jesus commanded us not to be divorced from our marital partner. So when we are to pursue marriage, we are in it, uh, as I performed a marriage yesterday, for better or for worse, till death do us part, is the words that I said. So just as we live in a culture now uh, where divorce happens, uh, divorce in the ancient world, can you guess how common it was? Very much common. It was not like, it was just as common, if not more so. Uh, I will say something that you would think is a joke, but is very serious. Uh, and we have ancient Jewish writings, they're not in the Bible, these ancient writings where rabbis would say that you could divorce your wife if she burnt your food. Don't know that I'd recommend that now, uh, but the point is, it was just, you want to divorce her? Ditch her, who cares? Sorry, she'll figure it out, right? So there was this lackadaisical sense of marriage uh, that is nowhere commanded in the Bible. There was just culturally, they were sinning, just to be upfront about it. And Paul calls believers to uphold the marital covenant. And why is that? Well, we think about what marriage is supposed to represent if Jesus will never leave his church. Why would you leave your spouse? That's the command that he's, that's the logic that Paul has here. Look at verses 12 through 14. So to the rest, I say, now I, not the Lord again, not meaning that this is not inspired. What he's saying is, well, Jesus didn't address this part. So myself as an inspired, an inspired apostle, I'm going to write it for you. I'm going to, I'm going to instruct you. If you're married to an unbeliever and they consent to be married to you, what's the charge? Remain married. The weight to be married to an unbeliever is great and all-encompassing in a Christian's life. So I think probably the assumption here is, again, speculation. Two people got married. One got converted. One didn't. Maybe one was a believer, married an unbeliever. And now Paul is saying, you can't just ditch. That's just not how this works. So I think it's good to, to know here, the Bible has a very high view of marriage. And that should humble us. There's no old ball and chain. There's no, oh, there's the grouch at home. It's always a high view. It's always a kind view. It's always a preserving, faithful, gentle view. And I think that should convict us and encourage us to love our spouse. He's simply telling those in this position of an unbelieving spouse 
to remain with him. Uh, I want you to look at verse 14. It's a very strange verse. A lot of people kind of think, read it and go, uh, Paul, I don't know what that means. I want to read to you. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as they are, they are holy. So slow down, Paul. Back the truck up here. Did Paul just say that if you marry a non-believer, that they're holy now, so now they're like, is, is salvation like you get married and you just pass it on by osmosis? That's not what he's saying, right? We know that. He's simply saying that for those who are married to a non-believer, your marriage is not tainted. God didn't sit there and say, Pfft. he's not doing that. There's no spitting, there's no scoffing. Same with your children. There's no, oh, good, you have kids. That's not at all the Bible's attitude. What it simply refers to is the household is set apart. It is made holy because there's a Christian in the house. Uh, We just read about the story of Joseph. Uh, All of Egypt got really good things because Joseph, a believer, was there. They got spoiled because he existed, because he was a believer. The same is true with a Christian household. There may be one believer in the house, but that house is far better off because there's one Christian there. The children are not doomed because there's no because both parents aren't believing. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is because you're there, stay married. Don't leave. You're the means by which they can hear the gospel, by your kids can hear it, and he addresses that in the next few verses. But Paul's point here is your staying is far more important than you could recognize. I say this gently. Maybe you know someone who's in this position. Perhaps this is your position. I cannot fathom how this would feel, just to be up front. Uh, I think we've known someone in the past who was married married to an unbeliever, and I could not imagine the, the sorrow, the sadness, and the confusion, but receive the words here very gently that Paul is saying, you're not tainted. You're not a fool. You're not to be dismissed. Remain with your spouse. There's a, a great verse in 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter actually says that the conduct, so he's, he has the same uh, story in mind. There's an unbelieving husband and a believing wife. And Peter says that the conduct of the unbelieving wife is actually a means by which God typically saves people. Isn't that astounding? You're married to an unbeliever. You're thinking, man, what's the point? You are the light in a dark room. (laughs) Isn't that good news? Don't just ditch them, right? It's a selfless love. That's what Paul is saying. It's a Christ-like one. So how would you live in such a way? I don't think that means every day you need to go, hey, you're unconverted. You know. I don't think you should slip a gospel track under their bed every night. I don't think that would be appropriate. But I do think it means that there are discussions at some point, but overall, I think there is a gentle submission to the husband, serving. I think there's a, a gentle leading of the husband to an unbelieving wife. It's demonstrating the work of Christ. I think it's talking. I think there are weird conversations, quote-unquote. I think there are hard days. But it seems to be the main theme is you live obedient to Christ. So I think we must pray for those situations that you may know of. And as a church, what better place to come alongside someone who is in that position? You are not alone. We have great hope to offer you. You have a bad marriage. We have a great God. (laughs) 
You feel confused? We have lots of clarity in the word. We come alongside, we pray, we help. We do not scorn, we only encourage. That's our role as a church, and I hope that you are fitted for it. Last of all in this section, look at verses 15 and 16. He says that divorce actually may happen. So as sorrowful as it is, Paul says the unbelieving partner separates. Notice he's not saying, Christian, go ahead and scoot. No, he's not saying that. If the unbelieving partner separates, because there's a different command here, right? There seems to be a separation. There's a, a leaving. Paul instructs the Corinthians that that seems to be the way that either God will call that person to be a believer or will call you to what he says is peace. So biblically, um, I would say there are two explicit reasons in the Bible uh, that permits divorce. Um, I put them all starting with the letter A because I'm a pastor and that's just what I happen to like doing apparently. Uh, the first one I would say is adultery. It's very clear. If there is unfaithfulness, divorce is permitted. And the second one, I think verse 15 is pretty clear. You can call it abandonment. Overall, these are not hopes. What I mean is when you do your vows, you don't think, all right, where's the back door? Unfaithfulness? Cool, I'm out of here. That's not what you're doing, right? It's like a fire escape. I don't ever want to use it, but it is there. I want to flee from it. If it's there, I can go. Overall, the Christian mindset should be uphold the marriage at all costs. I don't think it's from, I don't think it's from an explicit text, but I do think there would be a third reason for divorcing someone. I do think abuse is grounds for divorce. Um, you could say it's not loving your neighbor. You could say it's just hate. Those are all biblical reasons. So it's not like a verse saying, if they do this, then that. But I think you could gather that, that abuse would be a means for divorce as well. But overall, the Bible's main command is uphold the covenant. I used to work at a courthouse um, in Illinois. It seemed like there were divorces every single day. And I'm not here to give speculation, but it was sad. I mean, I, I wasn't in that courtroom. I was in different courtrooms, but... It was sad. So our encouragement as believers would be to, to know two things. Number one, that God encourages and commands you to be faithful to your partner. And number two, that though divorce, and just hear, hear the whole sentence here, though divorce is sinful because it's a sinful means, divorce is forgiven in, if you're a believer. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not, well, good luck, you're, you're in trouble. If you're a believer being sinned against and sinning against. If you're in Christ, it could be made new, just like he can make you new prior to being a Christian. He can make you new while you are divorced. There's no filth. You are not less than a husband or a wife. You are simply like the rest of us. You are fallen. And Christ is a good spouse. This portion of Paul's letter, he focuses a lot on marriage and divorce and singleness. I want you to hone in back on Verse 7, I think this is the main interpretation of the entire text. So what is Paul saying? What's the point? Well, look at verse 7. This is kind of the interpretive lens, you could say. I wish I were all as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Christians, this is our charge. You must realize that God has gifted us with everything we have in life. God makes no mistakes. He is very wise and he is very kind. He is not ignorant nor slow. He is not uncaring nor withholding. He does not give you the wrong person to marry. 
He did not forget to send you the other person. Oh, I meant to send him. Oh, he never does that. He's not manipulative or cruel. By faith, we trust that God's gifts are not only right, but they are good. And not only good, but they are good for me. So again, just to re, um, re-summarize what we just went through before we close. By faith, we trust that marriage is a picture of the covenantal love of Christ in his church. So what's the command to married people? Stay married. Fight for marriage, right? And the culture where it says being married is bleh. Divorce, who cares? Just who cares? War against that. Fight for the covenant. I said it last night. Um, Every marriage, whether Christian or not, is a picture of the gospel. The question is, are you showing it correctly? Are you showing it biblically? That's the main issue. Singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of Christ for the Christian. If you are single, are you showing us that Jesus is sufficient? It's a weighty call, and we need you to show us. And divorce shows us that the unshakable, reminds us of the unshakable faithfulness of Christ for his people. I say this gently. It is very good news if you're a believer that Jesus will never divorce you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's neither angry. He, has, he may chide. He may be frustrated with our sinfulness than he is. But he will never give you a bill of divorce and leave you. So God's gifts are for God's glory. May we walk in faith and in his timing, faith in his hand, trust that he is good and good for us and that he does not withhold because he is God and he is good. I want to read for you a closing passage and then we'll pray. It's from the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11. I hope you'll hear why I'm reading this and you'll be encouraged by it. Psalm 16 says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is, don't miss this, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray.